Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi was re-elected to office in May in what was a landslide victory for his BJP party. Modi is a Hindu nationalist in a diverse country that includes one of the world's largest Muslim populations. He rose to political prominence in the early 2000s as the chief minister of Gujarat during intercommunal riots that led to the murder of over a thousand people, mostly Muslims. He was widely accused of failing to stop the riots and has used the mass murder of Muslims in Gujarat in 2002 to his political advantage. Modi was first elected prime minister in 2014, and since his re-election in May 2019, Modi has very much doubled down on implementing a stridently pro-Hindu agenda that is undermining secular democracy in India. This includes, most recently, the passage of a law that excludes Muslim immigrants to India of certain citizenship eligibilities. That transparently anti-Muslim law has sparked massive protests across India, which at the time of recording show little signs of abating. On the line with me to explain how a newly re-elected Narendra Modi is using his political power to advance a Hindu nationalist agenda and what that means in a country with nearly 200 million Muslims is Michael Kugelman. He is Deputy Director of the Asia Program and a South Asia Senior Associate at the Wilson Center. We kick off discussing this new citizenship law before having a broader conversation about how Narendra Modi is changing India, what that means for Indian democracy, and international relations. And I should note, during this conversation, Michael Kugelman references an article in The New Yorker by Dexter Filkins. This is a masterful piece of journalism that explains some of the roots of Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalism. I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. If you are new to the show, welcome. Please subscribe to the podcast feed wherever you are listening to this. When you do, you will unlock hundreds of episodes that give in-depth treatment to topics that don't typically receive that kind of nuance and in-depth discussion from around the world. And if you're a regular listener, please do feel free to send me an email. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it's needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Michael Kugelman of the Wilson Center. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. 
Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So this is a a law that essentially um, allows uh, immigrants from three countries, neighboring India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, to apply for citizenship in India on a fast-track basis. Um, And it applies to uh, immigrants of just about every religion out there, except for one, and that is Islam. So in effect, if you are a, um, a Muslim migrant from one of those countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, or Bangladesh, then you are not eligible to apply for citizenship under this law. So, you know, on the one hand, initially it sounds like a really good thing. You're trying to provide citizenship for um, religious minorities that have been persecuted in the countries that they are originally from. But then when you look at this more broadly and realize that um, it doesn't apply to Muslims, uh, who in many cases um, are being persecuted where they are, for instance, if you're talking about you know, a Shia Muslim in Pakistan, for example, um, or a Rohingya Muslim who's come from Bangladesh. These are people that have been persecuted as well. And so the reason why this this uh, law is so uh, controversial is that it appears to explicitly discriminate uh, along religious lines, which is not allowed per the Indian constitution, uh, which says that there can't be any discrimination uh, on on religious grounds. India being a secular democracy. Well, a secular democracy, though it's probably fair to say that this latest law is yet another example of Narendra Modi and his ruling party chipping away at that secular identity of of India. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You know, I would argue, and I think many others would argue that, um, you know, the, the, the Modi government is really uh, marching toward um, a, an end goal of having India become a Hindu state, um, which, again, is the very opposite of what India was intended to be. Um, and this notion of India becoming a Hindu state really, um, I think, goes against the very notion, or it really it goes against the very bedrock principles that have defined the Indian political system since its inception. And by that, I'm talking about uh, ideals like secularism, religious pluralism. Uh, but you are right. I mean, what we've seen over the last few years is a series of, of, of new laws and developments, which we could certainly go into, that all have the same sort of pattern, which is to really elevate the status of, of Hindus in state and society, and in the process, marginalize um, what is a very large uh, Muslim minority in India. There, there are about 180, 200 million Muslims in India right Which, now. Which you know, makes it the single largest Muslim country outside of what, like Indonesia, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, a religious minority that um, has the, it's really akin to the total population of Pakistan, for example. So indeed, as you suggest, this is a very sizable um uh, a minority. We're and so, here. you know, I know we're, we're speaking about fast moving events, but can you describe the reaction so far to the passage of that law in India? 
Yeah, so the the reaction has been very striking in that there's been a lot of people um, with different types of political views in India that have come out in opposition. So on the one hand, and and you know as you know there were a number of protests which sometimes turned violent last weekend, and on the one hand you have um, uh, some Indian Muslims who have come out in protest because they fear this means that um, you know India is, is as we discussed marching in a direction that's going to make Muslims feel marginalized, more marginalized than they already do. Um, and so, you know, you have a lot of um, members of the, of the Muslim community who are, who are very unhappy and very worried. But the interesting thing is that you also have um, members of the Indian Hindu majority, particularly um, those that are particularly conservative and nationalist who worry that this new citizenship law will encourage more immigration on the mm-hmm. whole by essentially saying well look you know if you're a persecuted uh, if you're a persecuted hindu um uh minority or a persecuted um uh you know, some type of of of, uh, of minority that's being persecuted in some other country you're going to see this as a big opportunity to come to india where you'll be safe and you can get citizenship and you know for members of the this the these conservative nationalist uh indian hindus they don't want more immigration. You know, sort of shades of, of the types of, of debates we're having about immigration in a lot of other countries, too. So there's been that type of opposition to this new law. And then you also have a different type of opposition from those that just be, believe that this new law is really embodying this very troubling trend of India running roughshod over these these revered and cherished principles of secularism and religious pluralism. So you've got a critical, I would say you've got a critical mass of people in India that are really um, concerned, they're opposed to this law on very visceral levels, uh, even if they come from very different political points of view. So you said earlier that this law apparently seems to contravene India's constitution. Do you see there being a kind of a Supreme Court test case emerging in the coming future that could potentially invalidate this law? Yes, I mean, as I understand it, uh, uh, there already are. Um, there's already a, a movement in process to have some type of challenge at the Indian Supreme Court, um, and I think. I, I mean, it's hard to, to predict what will happen. I mean, my gut feeling, just based on where the direction that the country has been going in, the current zeitgeist in the country, I would be surprised if the Supreme Court does not uphold this law. And, you know, if the Supreme Court does rule in the favor of the government and says that, you know, this law is constitutional, that it, it can go ahead, and in that sense, if the law becomes, truly becomes the, the law of the land in India, I think that could provide a spark for, for fresh um, uh, protests and, and more unrest in the streets especially if people realize that this is this is for real you know you're going to have to live with the consequences of of this law um that would really i think galvanize a lot of people on the streets so this law is seemingly the latest in a series of steps that modi and his government have taken since re-election last spring the the elections were what in may and the bjp which is modi's party won overwhelmingly mm-hmm. um can you discuss, for example, like the various um, incarnations of this kind of nationalist ideology and how they've been applied since since May? Sure. Well, I would identify three um, particular examples that sort of exemplify this this way in which the Modi government in its second term is aggressively pursuing this Hindu nationalist agenda. The first one, as you mentioned, was the uh, the Article 370 revocation, which is essentially when the Indian government decided to 
um, revoke the special status, which was an autonomous status for the region of Jammu and Kashmir, which is the Indian administered part of Kashmir. That's the only um, Muslim majority states or region in India. Um, and there are many critics of Modi and his government that believe that one reason uh, why uh, the government decided to revoke Kashmir's autonomy is that by doing that, by incorporating it in, into a, India as a union territory, in other words, by making it a formal part of the country, it becomes a lot easier for people from outside this Muslim-majority region to come in, to invest, to acquire land, and to live there. So there's a fear that the government wants to alter the demographics of Jammu and Kashmir by essentially bringing in more uh, investors and people who are Hindus, Indian Hindus, so that and eventually you could eventually dilute the identity of this region, which again is Muslim majority. So that's why this I would describe this this case of the Article 370 repeal as an example of this Hindu nationalist strategy in effect to really make it easier for Indian Hindus to be in Jammu and Kashmir, even though this is a Muslim majority region. Second example was a, a Supreme Court case um, some time ago, a very controversial one that uh, really was, um, you know, came down to issues about uh, whether there was a former Hindu temple that had been present in a particular area, whether it should be rebuilt or not. It's been let, bandied about for many years. There, the Supreme Court had not ruled, weighed in, but at this point it did, and it said that um, uh, it is, um, the, the Indian government is now permitted to build a Hindu temple on this area that uh, many Muslims think had once been the site of a, uh, of a Muslim uh, facility. So now, of course, this is the Supreme Court. This is not the government, but it is interesting that the Supreme Court weighs in at this very time when you have Modi 2.0 just having relatively uh, returned to power. And then the third example to highlight is uh, something the, the Indian government has instituted what is described as a, a new registry um, of citizens in the state of Assam, which is a very impoverished, underdeveloped part of India in the Northeast. Um, the idea here was to start this registry, a list of, of Indian citizens. And the way that it was, that it was done to work was to have um, uh, people present evidence that their ancestors or their family had been in India since 1971. And if they could present documents to, to indicate that, they would be considered citizens. I think what, what, what was what, the idea here in Assam, which is a state that is controlled by the ruling BJP party, the idea was to weed out um, illegal immigrants, um, mainly Muslim from uh, Bengali immigrants from Bangladesh. Um, and it's worth maybe pointing out that, that Assam, if people can sort of picture a map of India in their mind, is that far easternmost province or state that's kind of surrounded, uh, that surrounds sort of Bangladesh and, yes. and, and Myanmar and Bhutan and to, to, to the north, that little sort of peninsula of India. Exactly, yeah. So it's a very strategic area, so to speak. But at any rate, the idea with this registry um, was to make it easier to oblige Muslim migrants in this state to um, to get out. Um, and what the But if you can't prove your citizenship, if you don't like have documentation, exactly. you are potentially rendered stateless. Yeah, that's that's the idea. Um, and what the Indian government wants to do eventually is to nationalize this registry of citizens and take it beyond Assam across the entire country. And um, you know that has a lot of people worried as well. 
Well, and potentially use that as a pretext to render population stateless. Exactly right. No, that's the, and I think it's important to look at the uh, the citizenship law, the new citizenship law, and this this registry uh, in in the same light, because I think in in both cases the idea is to try to you know, quite frankly, make it more difficult for uh, Muslim migrants to stay uh, in the country. And I should say that, you know, it was actually the, the, the Assam registry experiment backfired from the perspective of the Indian government, because what they ended up finding out was that uh, a significant number of the people of the of, of people that were not that couldn't find their documents and, and couldn't be listed as citizens, they were actually Hindus. They were they, they and that's I think has sort of given the Indian government an extra incentive to push out the citizenship law, which again makes it easier for Hindu migrants to get to get citizenship. Uh, so it's almost like a way to to, to answer back and, and reciprocate, not reciprocate, but I should I should say um, compensate for the fact that a number of these Hindu Hindus in India were disadvantaged by the um, what happened with the registry and make it easier for them to get citizenship through this new citizenship law. So, so can you briefly um, take us back in the political history of Narendra Modi to say Gujarat, where he? was uh, you know, what is like what's the functional equivalent of like the governor mm-hmm. of, of of Gujarat during the riots the 2002 Gujarat intercommunal violence riots which saw like over a thousand uh, mostly Muslim people killed um, and some would say and some have accused uh, Modi of facilitating those those riots or at least not using the power of the government to stop them and for that he was for a long time denied visas to, to go to Europe or the United States because of his supposed complicity in those uh, intercommunal riots. But it seems that um, Hindu nationalism and anti-Muslim sentiment has, has fueled his rise in politics in the, since the early parts of his career. Can you describe what happened in, in Gujarat and how what has happened then is sort of influencing and in, in very much defining his agenda today? Yeah, sure. And actually, very briefly, before we even hit on the Gujarat riots, I think that uh, Narendra Modi is someone that um, has always used uh, Hindu nationalism as a calling card. And it goes you know way back to his, to his very young days. I mean, this is someone that uh, came up as a a very avid, fervent member of the RSS, which is uh, a, a very, it's a virulent, um, well, a virulently ideologically conservative and even extremist organization that has close ties to the BJP, to the ruling party. And Modi was a member from a very young age. And the RSS is, for all intents and purposes, a an extremist organization that promotes virulent ver, uh, forms of Hindu nationalism, but anyway, yeah, getting to to the Gujarat riots. I mean, this is this was a case where Modi was the chief minister of the state of Gujarat, as you noted before, is basically like being governor uh, of the state, um, and he was indeed accused of not being the guy that was out there in the streets lighting the fires and firing the weapons, but the guy that refused to intervene, that even when he was told really, really bad and things were happening, people were getting killed, you know, he was accused of basically just shrugging his shoulders and and, and letting it go. Um, and there's a great essay in The New Yorker that came out several weeks ago by Dexter Filkins that really brings back, takes takes us through this, what happened. Um, and so those were the main allegations against Modi, that he basically did not do enough to stop what happened. Um, and as you noted, m- you know, much of the world um, 
seemed to think those allegations were true. And uh, as as you noted, there were some several key capitals, including Washington, that didn't necessarily have a formal visa ban, but uh, they basically said that um, you know they would hold him to this this law here in the U.S. that bans foreign leaders from coming to the United States if they're if they've been implicated in serious or egregious violations of religious freedom. Uh, and the EU also made it very difficult. They didn't let him come into, uh, uh, into their countries as well. But I mean, the interesting thing is that an Indian, the Indian Supreme Court did rule that there was no compelling evidence to convict him for uh, the allegations, even though a lot of people still think it's true. Um, but anyway, since then, you know, he's, he, he rose to the top. He became prime minister. And it's true that he used Hindu nationalism um, as obviously one of his big platforms, but he's also tried to sort of pitch himself as a as a as a free market as a free marketer, as a reformer, as someone that really wants to liberalize everything. And you know, he was actually very successful in that regard in engaging in a number of liberalization reforms in Gujarat to, uh, at least on some measures, strengthen the economy there. But um, and when he was first elected in 2014, the first time he became prime minister, he was really elected on a mandate to um, strengthen the Indian economy. Uh, that was one of the major uh, platforms that he was running on back in that election. Uh, but he didn't do very well in that effort to try to push through a number of sort of so-called second generation reforms needed to strengthen India's economy and make it put it in a better position to keep globally. And it's interesting that after the first few years of his term, um, things started to change a bit. Uh, I think he, 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 he saw the writing on the wall. He recognized that the economic reform plan was not going well. There was all these headlines about unemployment problems, a slowing manufacturing sector. And it's at that point when he really started to push the Hindu nationalist agenda. And you saw that echoed and amplified on the campaign trail in 2018, pardon me, 2009, yeah, 2018. At 2019, sorry, and then he um, he's really pushed that through um, during the the first few months of his of his last term. So I think it's almost like he recognized that his political his, his he was experiencing political vulnerability because of his inability to make progress on the economic side. Recognizing that vulnerability, he realized that it was time to push the social agenda, believing that would sort of insulate him from the political um, disadvantages he could face and struggling with the economy. And I think that worked for a while, you know, and it, well, isn't it, is it sort of fair to say that this, you know, terrorist attack in Kashmir in February, which killed 40 soldiers provided him with the pretext uh, he needed to really hammer home that kind of nationalist agenda and, you know, launched this kind of almost like fake war in, in, in Pakistan. That was around the time I think you and I spoke last, you know, you kind of, um, you, that that sort of attack gave him the pretext he needed to, as you said, hammer home on these kind of nationalist themes, and that you know that that sort of changed the trajectory of the election, which was only a few months after that. Yes, I mean you're right. I mean the the attack on Indian security forces, which India blamed on on Pakistan, even though it wasn't particularly clear that Pakistan had a direct role in it, that did, I think, give his campaign uh, new energy. Though I would argue that he was already coming down pretty harshly on Pakistan. I mean, rhetorically, there'd been a lot of harsh anti-Pakistan rhetoric in the months leading up to that incident. I mean, you had his government very publicly calling out any opponents of the Indian government as anti-national and literally saying, you should go to Pakistan, uh, which you know, is sort of like insulting them in that regard. 
Um, and, you know, the, the, the BJP didn't really have a strong opponent in the election campaign. The Congress, the main con- the opposition party, the Congress really wasn't doing a good job with the campaign. But, but you're right. That certainly did help. I mean, that, um, that whole, that whole, that, that attack on, on, on Indian forces, it sort of allowed Modi to come out with this really strong rally around the flag type mentality. And, you know, if there's one thing that'll get people united in India, it's anger at Pakistan. And that's what happened that it catapulted him to the top. But, you know, I should say that, you know, he, his view, Modi's view had been that by pushing the social agenda, that'll make people forget about the economic constraints and, People would support the social agenda because, you know, the, the most people in India uh, would support it. It's a big gamble. It did work for a while when he made his re- his when he revoked the autonomy of Kashmir. That was extremely popular um, <clears throat> across the board, even among many Indian Muslims. But it's now with the citizenship law where things have changed a bit because you actually do have significant opposition to it. So. You know, it seems clear based on what you've described that Modi's attempts to chip away at the secular foundation of Indian, you know, democracy could have, you know, profoundly destabilizing domestic political effects. What sort of international consequences do you see um, towards uh, resulting from this Hindu nationalist agenda? Yeah, I would break down the international implications to to regional within South Asia and then more broadly in a global sense. In terms of the regional implications, you know, it's, it's very striking that um, some of India's um, closest friends in Asia, uh, in, in South Asia and Asia, um, were very unhappy about this decision. Uh, Bangladesh, which is probably India's closest partner in South Asia, uh, was very unhappy and very worried because it feels that all of these uh, Bangladesh, Bengali Muslim migrants that had come into India from Bangladesh are going to be kicked out of India and they're all going to pour back into Bangladesh. And that's not what Bangladesh wants. Uh, and then you had a country like Afghanistan, which is also very close to India. Uh, the government in Kabul was very upset because it didn't like being told by India that um, Afghanistan is a country where religious minorities are persecuted. It didn't make the Afghan government look good. Uh, so, you know, several senior Bangladeshi officials canceled visits to India uh, soon after this decision was made. And then you had the Japanese prime minister, Shinzo Abe, who was planning a summit. He was going to meet with Narendra Modi in Assam. He had to uh, cancel his trip for safety reasons. So that doesn't look good. So I think hmm. you know, for, for Narendra Modi, uh, improving relations with India's neighbors, not just Pakistan, but the broader region has always been a major foreign policy objective for him. But, so I, but, so, but this, uh, this citizenship law has really dealt a blow to that. And in terms of the broader, <clears throat> the, the more global implications, well, I think you have to look at, at India's image, which has always been fairly pristine uh, until the last few years. But there's you know, ha- having these images come out of these violent protests and uh, Indian police uh, literally beating up and bludgeoning um, uh, female Muslim university students in New Delhi, that doesn't play well. That is not that is not the India that the Indian government wants the world to see, particularly given the importance that the Indian government has placed in attracting more foreign investment to help um, stabilize its economy. It's been looking for investors to come in and help things out. They've been trying to get um, uh, investors, pardon me, the biggest manufacturing companies in the world to come in and work alongside Indian manufacturers to try to strengthen the manufacturing industry. It's a program known as Make in India. So, you know, what's happening, the unrest, and I think that the threat that the communal tensions could could really explode uh, if current trends continue 
you know, that doesn't play well for India's image. And it certainly, I think, could give investors, foreign investors, pause. Investors who already are a bit weary about investing in India because of all the red tape and all that other stuff as well. So pretty significant regional and broader international implications for India's government coming out of this domestic uh, legislation here. Well, well, I mean, do you think then Modi overstepped? I mean, having secured this massive electoral victory in May um, and having, you know, seen that his path to victory was advancing a Hindu nationalist agenda, he's suddenly advancing it very aggressively. I mean, has he he overstepped? Yeah, and this is this is a debate that we're hearing a lot about. Did he go too far this time? I mean, certainly, I think that alarm bells should be going off across the uh, across the government when you see the extent of the opposition to this law, and particularly given that you've got members of the BJP rank and file, members of the you know the conservative conservative Hindu nationalists that are out there decrying this law because they think it'll invite more immigration into India. That's a concern, but I don't think we should overstate the 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 problems for Modi here. I mean, certainly he's he's going to be under a lot of pressure now, but he you know he still remains by far the most popular leader in in India by far, and he still has much of the population behind him. And so, you know, I would sort of push back against those that have been saying in recent days that we could be seeing the beginnings of some type of mass anti government uh, and, and a mass anti government movement in India to rival. You know, the Arab Spring movements in the past and some of these protests we've seen in places like Iraq and Hong Kong more recently, I wouldn't go there because, uh, you know, much of the country is still behind um, Modi and uh, much of the country is still behind the, the citizenship law as well. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it may be premature to say that he overstepped his bounds, but I think the, the, the what's next question becomes key here. If he keeps trying to push this social agenda and he doesn't try to make efforts to uh, you know, reconcile and build bridges with with the Muslim community and all that. And if there's more unrest, and if he continues to struggle to fix the economy, I think that's the big question. That then you can get to a point where his his vulnerability could become more stark. And this is someone that you know has has sort of indicated subtly that he would be happy to remain prime minister for another few decades because there are no term limits in India when it comes to prime ministers. But th- I think now, for the first time, perhaps in his five years in power. We've gotten to a point where we have to sort of step back and say, well, he, he's going to have he's going to have a lot of work to do um, to ensure that he could be reelected once we get to the uh, to the next poll. Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Michael. And funny enough, I got a request to do an episode on this topic after I had recorded this conversation. So it seems like me and you, the fantastic podcast listening audience, were on somewhat of the same wavelength. Always love when that happens. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.